Thank you for joining us, Jeff. Uh, you've just come from Hong Kong, so I think that's a, a good pretext to, to ask you. It's now entering its fourth month of, of demonstrations. No one knows what's going to happen. It seems to be a problem without a solution. What's your view of things? I think it's very worrying, um, very worrying indeed. Uh, I think you've described it well. It's a problem without a solution. It's not clear what the end point of this is going to be. Um, but I think one thing is for sure that Hong Kong will never be the same again. At what point uh, the issues settle down, what point the streets are cleared and people stay off the streets, I don't know, and I don't know how that's um, brought about. I think it's been very um, surprising that uh, Beijing has been so reluctant to move, remove Kerry Lam and make some compromises and try and set up uh, a better mechanism of negotiation with the uh, demonstrators. But uh, it could well become a significant black swan event in the world, not just in the region. Do you think that the worst could happen, that there would be a Tiananmen 2.0 and they'll send in the tanks to crush the movement? Well, I guess everything's possible. Mm. And the worrying thing there is that uh, clearly the demands have gone beyond um, the extradition bill and greater consultation with the government to going to the heart of uh, Beijing's concerns, which is the nature of the political system and the one country, uh, two systems model, mm. which is now increasingly being rejected on the streets. So the longer this goes on, the more the demands of the demonstrators become more of a direct challenge to Beijing's authority. And I think that makes it very risky. However, it has to be ultimately the, the, the most extreme and last solution for Beijing because uh, it's not clear what the um, exit strategy for the military would be. Mm. And militaries are very reluctant to go in to conflict unless they know what the exit strategy and it's, it's, it, it would be an unbelievable mess. But that is the worst outcome. Um, uh, but I think for sure the most predictable outcome is that Hong Kong will no longer be the same. Look, at the end of the day, the situation for the protesters is hopeless on two counts. And Bilahari Corkison, the former Singaporean diplomat who seems to be quite outspoken, had an op-ed titled Harsh Truths about Hong Kong just the other weekend, making the point first, Hong Kong is Chinese territory and Hong Kongers are Chinese citizens. Mm. And when it comes to one country, two systems, Beijing has always emphasised one country not two systems, yes. and they always will. So he said, when it comes to the protesters, what country is going to give them more than rhetorical support? At the end of the day, where can they go? Nowhere and no one. Harsh truth, but fair comment, do you oh, think? Oh, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's, it's the, the harsh reality that the demonstrators have to face. Um, that, where does that lead, though? Mm. I mean, I think everyone knows that. Um, and uh, all governments recognise uh, Hong Kong as an uh, integral part of Chinese territory. Uh, everyone supports the one country, two systems. The problem is that uh, the, the, the two systems is basically over as a result of these demonstrations. Mm. Beijing will feel no compunction to continue with what's become increasingly a charade mm. of two systems. Mm. And the, the mask will come off. Uh, whether that requires Beijing to intervene violently in Hong Kong is still an open question, uh, but things have changed irrevocably. 
One thing that might trigger a, a crackdown would be if there were signs that this was somehow spreading to the mainland, although it started off as a quite specific local Hong Kong issue. As you say, it's now morphed into something else and Beijing has been doing everything possible to make sure it, it doesn't spread. But in Tiananmen, of course, that was exactly what happened, that there were protests right across the country. Um, it represented a threat to the regime. Do we need to put ourselves in Beijing's shoes and, and just look at the history of China and the instability that they've been through over the past century and even longer with warlordism and civil war, the mass terror, the cultural revolution? Now, they are obsessed about order and stability above all else, but there's also good reason for that. Exactly, and it's important in all aspects of uh, looking at China's behaviour and actions that um, you also try and uh, look, at, look at it through the lens of uh, Beijing. I mean, we had an interesting comment uh, this morning in the conference about uh, Beijing may look to outsiders as strong, powerful, or China, strong, powerful, united, uh, but what the Beijing leadership feels are massive vulnerabilities and weakness. And I think that is, is, is also true in this situation, that uh, a Beijing perspective of, on Hong Kong is, well, um, it was a British colonial territory. They never had democratic rights under the British. Um, why should um, this be an issue of concern? Sure, they control the media and information flows to most Chinese people. But uh, I think also I, amongst most Chinese people, there would be very little sympathy uh, for what's happening in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's portrayed as a spoiled child yes, that's exactly, not, you know, exactly. isn't appreciative enough of the privileges yes. that it has. No, exactly. Because that's and as good as it gets, as, as Bilahari Ferguson yep. said. And that's right, yeah. Mm. And, and recall that over the last couple of years, there's been incidents between local Hong Kongese and Chinese visitors, mainland Chinese visitors, uh, for crowding the shops and mm. behaving badly or whatever. Uncouth. Uncouth, Curious, yeah, yeah, thank you. So, yeah. There is a, a, an underlying resentment on both sides. Mm. Uh, so it goes back to the point that the demonstrators, I think, have um, really very few options and not much to hope for. I think it's a pity that the government of Hong Kong has not been better in bringing the disaffected people into a much better dialogue and making concessions on some of their demands. You know, the, the line has been, if we make any more concessions, then there'll be only more demands made. But holding that hard line has not um, mitigated against that. The demands have continued to increase. The situation has become worse, not better. You mentioned vulnerabilities before. Now, the People's Republic of China turns 70, and we're going to see a massive display of strength, yep. military parades, the latest high-tech gear, yep. at a time when the regime, and Xi Jinping in particular, are under increasing pressure at home, at abroad. They've got Donald Trump's trade war, but also a more fundamental problem at home about how much control do they allow for in the economy and in society uh, in order to move or, or to, to leapfrog into from the middle income trap up into the next income level. And it seems that they're moving in the opposite direction towards more control, more centralisation, more personalisation, just at the wrong time in China's development trajectory. But then there is this concern that if they, if they liberalise or lessen the control, uh, that there will be social unrest. Do you think that's a valid concern? I think um, 
Well, one, they're very pragmatic when it comes to policy making. There is no ideology. Uh, two, they know they need to maintain relatively high rates of growth. Mm. And I think they have the capacity to do that. So policy, if it's more on reform side or more on dirigist intervention side, will I think be shaped by the circumstances at the time, but always in order to sustain growth. So just recently in the last week, they've actually liberalised uh, interest rate setting, mm. uh, which is a proposal that the IMF and World Bank have been making for years to China. They've been very reluctant because of losing control over financial instruments, but they've moved now to a much more market-based exchange rate setting mechanism, uh, interest rate, interest rate setting mechanism, which um, uh, will help the, um, the non-state sector and the small and medium-sized enterprises as well. I see Does that indicate to you a bit of a recalibration that Xi Jinping is, and oh, the leadership is starting to listen to some of the advice? Yeah, um, good, good question. Uh, or you can look at it another way, that there is always a, a contest of ideas going mm. on at the centre. Mm. And there's a range of views. And we tend to forget about that. We look at China as if it's monolithic and that there's Xi's view and no other view. But not at all. There is a range of views. There are a lot of highly educated um, advisors. There's uh, Liu He, for example, the vice premier and leading economic policy person in the country after Xi. is North American. PhD, economic train, fluent English. It's not for not knowing, but they're sitting on top of this enormous economy where stability is the overriding policy objective. Um, and they pursue policy out of uh, necessity rather than out of any um, philosophical uh, predisposition. I agree with that point about you know the Communist Party not being a monolith. I mean, you, you wrote in an op-ed earlier uh, last month, I think, um, about this buyer's remorse that has gripped the West because yes. China liberalised economically but didn't fulfil expectations in... OK, it didn't become a democracy. I don't think anyone was pretending it was going to become a Jeffersonian or Westminster democracy, but that it would move in the more politically liberal direction that it had been moving in a more yes. pluralistic direction. Now, it wasn't just dreamy diplomats and wide-eyed corporate executives that thought that China would move in a more liberal direction. There were countless, as you just mentioned, some of them liberal officials, think tankers, academics, activists, etc., that also advocated and thought that China was going to move in that direction. So that would lead us to assume that the pendulum, which has now swung more the other way, is not permanently stuck yeah. in that direction. Would you agree with that? I think that's a really good point, yeah. absolutely. We've seen periods like this before in the 30-odd years of, uh, of reform. Uh, remember, for two years after Tiananmen in 1989, uh, nothing happened. Um, and there was a raging debate behind the scenes mm. over whether to push on with market uh, reforms or to go back to a more statist uh, planned economy. And eventually, Deng Xiaoping, who people thought of as the most powerful person in the country, but it took him the best part of two years, supported, by the way, by uh, uh, Xi Jinping's father, mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, to basically win the argument. And it wasn't until, um, I think, April uh, uh, 92 that Xi went to Shenzhen uh, and did his famous southern tour, uh, very much supported by Xi Jinping's father, to basically send the message to the country 
that the reformers had prevailed and uh, China was going to pursue economic reform. And then the foot hit the accelerator and essentially everything we have up until today comes from that policy shift in 92. Can external pressure help the more liberal reformers gain the upper hand in this contest of ideas at the core of power? Yeah, it's, it's, it's... That was it's, the initial hope with the trade war, but it seems to be moving the other direction. Yeah, I mean, it's probably utterly counterproductive. Mm. And that's the point. External pressure does play a role, but how much and when it's applied is extremely important. So uh, I always uh, counsel against um, wanting to sanction China in any way, uh, even at the light, lightest uh, level. Which is seen as bullying and humiliation. And it plays to the Conservatives who mm. don't want China to reform and continue to open. Mm. There was a huge debate after Tiananmen Square. Uh, and the Australian government was very divided over it as well. The Prime Minister, Hawke, at the time had so, become so emotionally attached to China and so shocked by the horrible events that took place um, that he wanted to really you know, punish China. And, and Gareth Evans, the Foreign Minister, uh, equally found the events abhorrent. but. Um, said, look, we have long-term interests with this country, and so we need to do just enough, which sends a message just to those that are culpable, but not um, affect the wider Chinese population. And in fact, the, the, the conversation then was very much in those terms that people were very, in China, very grateful that Australia did just what it must do and no more, because to have done more would have made uh, reformers lose face, they would have felt humiliated, and there was so much shame and humiliation that came from Tiananmen Square by itself to have foreigners then adding to that was seen by reformers, by liberal elements in China, as being utterly counterproductive. Speaking of counterproductive, I mean, you're quite a vocal critic of Australia's approach to, at the moment, to the PRC, and you say that the bilateral relationship is, is at one of its lowest ebbs ever. So how can, how can we improve that and get, we can't, we can't reset the relationship. I think that language isn't useful because we can't go back to the way it was. China's changed and the relationship's That's changed true. as That's well. Yeah. We need to put on new foundations. Mm. So where do you see the best ways forward in that respect, given the nature of the regime at the moment? Yeah. Well, I think the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister uh, have done actually a very good job in managing the rhetoric around the relationship. You mean the Morrison? The Morrison, Morrison and Payne, yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, in managing the rhetoric around the relationship. Turnbull and Bishop just got it all wrong. I mean, Turnbull made something perfectly sensible, like the foreign anti-foreign interference bill, into an anti-Chinese bill. And you're talking about his provocative throwaway line yeah, exactly, about standing yeah, yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and it was always China was always the reference. Okay, we know it was um, uh, triggered by by concerns over China, and legitimate those concerns are legitimate. But it was, it was managed appallingly in terms of a, a difficult, complex, sensitive bilateral relationship. And Bishop had been consistently the most strident foreign minister across a whole range of issues, but most particularly the South China Sea, mm. way ahead of our regional neighbours, way ahead of New Zealand. Now, I never thought I'd say this, but we could learn a lot about managing the relationship by looking at the New Zealanders, mm. uh, who understand it's asymmetric. They need China more than China needs New Zealand and they've got to work out how to live in this world and work out what is the most pragmatic way of managing the relationship. Specifically on what we could do, 
I, as I said, I think Morrison, uh, the rhetoric, the, the presentation of it is, 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 has improved enormously. Do you think the Australian government, you, know, you mentioned this, Malcolm Turnbull and Julie Bishop, but to, to a certain extent, they've been, been testing the waters and seeing how far we can assert our national interest in the face of a much more assertive and even aggressive PRC. Things I think now are starting to settle into a more predictable pattern, which is what everyone says you need to do to deal with the Chinese. So we've had the foreign interference laws, as you say, which in theory, they draw a clear line, or as much as you can draw the line, between influence and interference. Similarly, we've now got a proper process in place that's predictable to assess foreign investment in critical infrastructure. The next sector which is under review is the university sector, where once again, the universities themselves, Peter Varghese from um, University of Queensland, Queensland, said we want to talk to the government, have a dialogue about where to draw a line on collaborative research, because we realise there is a problem um, with some of the dual-use applications, but at the same time don't want to cut ourselves off from this research superpower. So do you feel that after a couple of years of turmoil, government's starting to get its act together? I mean, democracies are very messy and it has, the policy has been all over the place, but it's now looking like it's starting to get a bit more coordinated. No, I, I'd agree with that. Uh, but we are in a situation, how do we come back from where we are? Um, and maybe it is just a matter of time because eventually China will um, bring us back into the fold at some point. But uh, how much do we figure on China's radar? Because I mean, this is the other thing. Yeah. it's very important to us. And you know, you open the newspaper and it's full of China stories. But if you're in the PRC, how you know how yeah. high up the radar is it, does Australia really register? Well, much less than we used to, mm. uh, right. and probably hardly at all mm. now. Uh, there was a time when uh, China actually looked to us. I mean, when I first went in as ambassador in 2007 the foreign ministry officials were saying, where's Australia in the region? You know, you, you, you did the Cambodian peace settlement, you led that, you created APEC and we were so happy to join. You uh, created the Bali process on people smuggling. All of these activities that Australia once either led or was very much uh, a part of, we have faded out of that. And so my, my, my main issue here in terms of, yeah, things might uh, seem as if they're getting back on track, but there's a great diplomatic and foreign policy deficit in Australia at, the pre at present. We are reacting, we're reacting to Trump. We're so worried about where the US alliance is going to go. We're reacting to uh, China. What is the forward agenda that we want to prosecute? What sort of relationships do we want to build in the region? Uh, as I've written with the Asia Society, if, um, if uh, China is such a threat, why aren't we building the closest, most intimate relations with our regional neighbours like Indonesia? Um, as I said in my presentation this morning, we're not alone. <clears throat> but the way the debates conduct in Australia, you think we're the only country on earth that's trying to juggle enormous economic interests with China, plus the security uh, and broader uh, risks that China brings. You mentioned the region, and I think that's a good point because I think it was Jeff Miller, he's a former diplomat himself and head of ONA uh, expressed his concern at one point that we risked having a China-only policy yeah. as far as the region goes, um, when it's not the, uh, it's a very important player and a rising yeah. player, but there are other great powers or, or powers in the region. You just mentioned some of them, Indonesia, but there's also India, Japan, etc. Why have, 
Why has the regional diplomacy gone off? You, you mentioned all these initiatives where Australia was a leader in the past and doesn't seem to play that role anymore. No. Well, again, I, I think it's because we've lost our way on, on, on diplomacy. Um, uh, the intelligence, security, military establishment, defence establishment in Canberra uh, really dominates um, not only China policy but regional policy. We have weaponised our foreign policy because everything's seen through the prism of the China threat. Mm -hmm. And that's why the China threat needs to be in some way understood for what it really is uh, and how severe the risks are and, and, and what they are specifically instead of this generalised uh, we need to just respond to our fears about a strong powerful China. China is the dominant power in the region even though it doesn't have the military head military of the United power. States. Mm. You know, all countries will look to China in terms of how they position themselves on issues and we're, we're doing the same. So. Um, but as you mentioned before, all countries are also very concerned about being sucked into a Sinocentric yes. orbit because basically that limits your policy choices, doesn't it? If access to the Chinese market is dictated by whether Beijing approves of your, your yeah. policy positions or not, then that circumscribes your political independence. Well, so you, you, you need to keep the WTO mm. as a viable, mm. strong, effective institution rather than undermining it like Trump is doing by not appointing appellate body judges and so on. But I was just going to say on the region, Morrison's recent visit to Vietnam should be welcomed and applauded, um, but it was done purely as a, uh, as a reaction to China. Um, why haven't we been cultivating a much broadly based relationship with Vietnam, which also includes the, the China geopolitical dimension? I think one of the best and most underappreciated uh, aspects of Australian foreign policy in re recent years was when Turnbull invited the leaders of ASEAN to come to Australia. Now, when I was in government, foreign in, in DFAT, it would be unheard of that they would have come. If, if anyone had proposed it within our system, you would have been laughed at. But no, they all turned up, including the Malaysian mm. Prime Minister. They turned up for one reason, and one reason only, China. China. So we need to build on that. That is really valuable mm -hmm. material for us. But if we can't talk to China, if our officials can't meet Chinese officials, and if we have uh, a US first, a US only policy, we'll have no credibility with our regional neighbours. We were not going to be able to be successful in, uh, in, in coalition building and, and, and forming alliances that we're central to that help not necessarily push back on China, but just uh, remind China that there's a cost for bad behaviour. Mm. And we can only do that collectively, and we can't rely on the United States. As you take the South China Sea, China has behaved badly, mm. but the United States is not going to go to war with China over the South China Sea, and, and Chinese know it. It's so, a fait accompli. Yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and, and what, we, what we've lacked is you know, processes and dialogue and whatever to be able to collectively, the smaller states of East Asia, uh, remind China that, that there can be costs if you behave badly. So I, I've been proposing the notion that we, we should look at start, many people have talked about it in the past, but I think the time now is right for Australia to take the lead with regional partners on developing some sort of regional security mechanism. Mm -hmm. And maybe in the first instance, you don't even have China and the United States at the table. Maybe you start to build it really from the grassroots up. 
until it gets enough momentum to be able to cope with the, the big players. So I take it you wouldn't be a supporter of the quad? No, I'm, I'm, I'm probably the most vocal opponent in Australia uh, mm. uh, of the quad. And there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, you've got to look at his genesis with Abe, and he's very much mm. a sort of nationalist, anti-Chinese uh, position 10 years ago when the idea was first floated. Not now. I mean, Abe's showing much more nuance and sophistication in managing that relationship. But my main point is, why would we, as Australia, want to go into an arrangement where the other three members are China's strategic competitors? Mm-hmm. Now, as I was saying this morning, there's a contradiction in our policy. The reality is that at its heart, policymakers in Canberra work on a, a premise that China is a strategic competitor. They accept that our interests are identical with the United States. But that's not true. You can see why Japan is a strategic competitor with China. You can see India. India has hot border disputes still with China. And of course, the United States is the um, dominant uh, hegemonic power. But why we would want to be in that group, um, which is embarrassed about existing, because you know, ministers are always trying to talk it down and pretend it doesn't really exist. It's part of this muddle, I believe, in our foreign policy. And it's part of the broader concept of the Indo-Pacific, which is still really struggling uh, to get traction because it misses that economic uh, well, component, which is what makes the alternative of Sino-Central yeah. region so compelling. But it, it's struggling to get going because it's a phony idea. Mm. It's phony because it's premised on... Or it's, it's, it's trying yeah, to bring India in. It's based but, yeah. on the belief that yeah. India can be brought in to yeah. balance China. Yeah. Well, India has no interest in balancing mm. China. It has its own very clear bilateral relationship with China and its own very clear strategic and military issues with China. But India looks west. Its overriding foreign policy consideration is Pakistan. Mm. India, has, yeah. India has almost no geopolitical or strategic or economic interest in East Asia. The, 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 you know, the great geopolitical challenge is East Asia. And so Asia-Pacific makes sense because the US is part of uh, East Asia's security uh, complex. But India's got nothing to do with the East Asian security complex. Well, the construct, just like the Asia-Pacific itself, is, is really a, a construct, a regional, a regional concept. That's going to be fun to... Um, Sorry, but I, I, mm. I, I, say Asia, I say Indo-Pacific makes as much sense... You're talking about from a geographic perspective. A, 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 yeah. From a geopolitical mm, perspective, mm. but it makes as much sense as uh, Atlanto-Pacific would. Mm. It's interesting that, you know, should the Belt and Road take off um, through Central Asia, etc., um, that the whole gravity of the region would actually be moving westward instead of eastward. What are the implications? For Australia, you talked before that maybe we should join up to the BRI yeah. um, rather than getting left behind, yeah. marginalised. Well, the BRI has taken off. Mm. It does exist. I know it exists. They, they, they have meetings with, I don't know, 130-odd countries and most of the major international organisations like WIPO and so on mm. are there doing technical work. I mean, it is a new part of the global architecture, whether we like it or not. Um, the point about Central Asia and moving the geopolitical centre of gravity from the you know, Western Pacific to Central Asia, well, historically that's where it's always been. Um, and yes, it is moving in that direction. But I think at the, at the other side, you've still got the preponderance of US uh, military and economic power. 
Uh, so in a sense, China's, what it's done, it's always historically sorted security from Central Asia, hence the Great Wall mm. and all of that, mm. right? Um, and what's new is that it has realized in the last 20 years, it also needs to find its security in the Western Pacific. So China's going from almost nothing to getting to a point where it's able to set conditions for other countries uh, in terms of their activities in the region. So you know, even 10 years ago, the US could operate off the coast of China as if it were the coast of California. Mm. Well, China's pushed that back. And that is a very clear strategic objective you know, the, the three-line strategy or whatever it's called these days. Not the, the nine three dash. Mile not the dash. Uh, not the dash, no, the other one. The, yeah. Yeah. the island chain. Island chain, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the first island, island chain. chain. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and that's a very clear, there's no mystery about what they want. They want to um, uh, control and, 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 and have security in that area. And, and why any, any big state would want to do that, it's not a mystery. Do you think the PRC will only feel secure they can push the United States out of the region, just as the United States did to European powers in the yeah. Western Hemisphere. Oh, it's an excellent analogy, and I guess the answer is yes. Mm. Um, Being uh, a realist. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It, it's a mm. question of, I guess, degrees of insecurity. Mm. Um, and I think they are still quite insecure, particularly because of Straits of Malacca, China's vulnerability to raw material imports and so on being disrupted. But Which you can see the BRI as a defensive response to that. Oh, like a well, dilemma. I think that's how yeah. it started. Yeah. I first heard about the BRI in 2007. I went to visit the mayor of Chongqing and he was telling me about the, the railway they planned to build from Chongqing to Duisburg in Germany. And it seemed so incredible. I, I agonised over whether I should report it to Canberra or not. I did. I was probably laughed at uh, in Canberra, but that's fine. Um, but all of that and, and the twin pipelines across Myanmar into the Indian Ocean to Kunming, all of that was driven by the geopolitical uh, concerns over being denied access to raw materials and energy. See, see China and the Belt and Road label came afterwards. Much later, 2013. And suddenly all these projects were rebranded. Rebranded, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and I, can, I can tell you for years after... Um, uh, Xi Jinping made his speech in 2013 in Astana in Kazakhstan. Most officials had no idea what the Belt and Road was. Mm. I took a group of... Uh, well, it was one Belt, one Road initially, one, which exactly. I can understand why that got rebranded. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but I, I took a group of lawyers to Xinjiang, maybe 2015, from, again from Australia, to find out really what was going on. And they wanted to be able to present to clients that they knew all about the Belt and Road. So we went through Xinjiang. And, and, and officials were smiling when they talked about building railways into Pakistan and whatever. But now there's a lot more definition around it. And again, it's partly... Uh, and it's also recalibrated as well. It's not as grandiose and ambitious and as it was. As no, it was. No. And, and, it's been and, a lot of waste. Yeah, and people need to understand how China mm. works. If, if the leader says something, then it's, the officials over-interpret, over-interpret. And it's a bit like you know, Stalin's famous saying in 1932 after the... Uh, purge of the kulaks uh, and everyone the country was starving to death comrades were dizzy with success because people the officials that's how the system works uh, and they're the inefficiencies and problems with the system and so um, yeah the Belton Road is um, uh, the, 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 the key organizing principle 
for Chinese international relations and foreign investment, basically. Well, it's become Xi Jinping's flagship, too. Exactly. Let's get back to some of the scepticism um, about the trajectory of the Chinese economy. They, can they pull it off, um, jump out of the middle income trap? We've got all these challenges, demographic, environmental, and others. And put that in light of Hugh White's thesis. This, I often put this question to Hugh White or others have as well, that China faces these fundamental limitations. So he's assuming this inoxorable growth, yeah. this juggernaut, um, this, this powerful regional hegemon um, that may not be able to overcome these challenges the, the way he assumes. When that's put to him, he says, well, I've been hearing this since reform and opening and every year people say, well, they can't overcome these challenges and then they defy predictions. So his line is basically that this is just wishful thinking on your part because uh, you want China to do the hard work for you and disappear so that you don't have to think about the challenges. What do you think of that mm. line of argument? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm very much of the same view. Mm. Uh, I don't know how long this will last in China, the economic growth and prosperity, but, but um, uh, I've been hearing that for 30 years. And uh, everyone, there's, there's a, an ideologically driven view, not only ideological, mm. but there's a view that's always come, particularly from the United States, that because it's not an open market economy, um, it, it, it's time limited, it's used by date, it's short, and it will not uh, succeed. The thing is, it, it's 1.4 billion people occupying a vast resource-rich continental space. Um, and uh, already there must be three to 400 million people who are at the developed country per capita income level. So when we talk about middle income trap, that's just a, uh, an overall aggregate. It's a bit like the old joke about economists. What's an economist with his head in the oven and his feet in the fire? <laughs> On average, he's comfortable. Mm. But, but to, to, to think that 400 million people uh, or a developed country that's economy of that size has been created in 15 years. Uh, and, and, and it's hard to see why, with all the other areas where there's catch up, why that's not going to be replicated. I'm not going to say um, uh, 1.4 billion people will end up at a developed per capita income level, but it's certainly going to be more than 400 million. It might be half the population or two thirds. That's a lot of people. And even at that level, the PRC has got critical mass now. Yes, that's yeah. exactly right. And, and say they're growing at 6% plus or a bit minus, I don't care, in around that range, then you're really only talking about either 12 years or 14 years of compound interest before per capita income doubles again. So whatever you see in China today, whether it's 12 years, 13, 14, even 15, try and conceive of per capita incomes being twice what they are today and what the place will look like. And that's not a China booster story, it's, it's really arithmetic, unless there's an external shock. And there's always obviously the risk of, of that. Let's wrap up there. It's interesting how conversations about China always turn to speculation yes. about possible scenarios. Yeah, yeah. And when we should have learned by now, if there's one thing we know is that the PRC will always surprise us. Yep, exactly. Thank you, yeah. Jeff, for spending some time with us. It's my pleasure.